Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Chia. Good to see you. We scheduled this call to try to do a more regular thing and catch up. And in that month and a half that you scheduled me out for because you're such a busy, popular person, uh, it turns out that unfortunately we had some fantastic meltdown news, terrible for crypto industry, but great from a timing and podcast perspective to obviously talk about your subject matter expertise, which is crypto, which you have gone all in for. So I want to welcome Chia. <laughs> Actually, a fantastic fintech and crypto VC. Everything is great, you know. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit, yeah, in your own words for like a minute. Thanks for having me again, Jeremy. It's been a very, very crazy time. Been on here for a few times, but for those who are not here, uh, kind of know me. I'm Chia. I am a crypto investor at Pintera Capital, which is a five-bill crypto hedge fund. of the first institutional investors into crypto since 2013. We've been very early in the scene. And before that was a fintech investor in Singapore, dealing with all your very traditional fintech investments. And before that was uh, helping them build e-commerce companies, like you're a very good kind of tech worker in Southeast Asia, working at Rocket Internet and in places like Pakistan, Sri Lanka, etc. And before that, I've got a law degree. And so intersection of crypto and law is uh, something that has popped up recently because of everything that's happened to FTX, which has come to a, as a huge surprise, uh, I think, to the industry and obviously very disappointing actions that have been taken and reacting to all of what's happened over the past couple of weeks. So yeah, no, good timing, Jeremy, and uh, happy to chat about this. Let's describe, I don't know, in the short words, what actually happened for those who somehow haven't seen the news in crypto or heard something about it, but don't really know what's going on, or they think something unfortunate happened. How would you describe it in your words, Chao? Like your tweet of what happened? Essentially what has happened is, you know, fundamentally there's been a misuse of client funds as per the terms of condition and, and really kind of the rules of any exchange out there. When you deposit funds onto an exchange and you use those funds to trade, the exchange should be only, you know, focusing on making money by taking a percentage cut of transactions and they shouldn't be taking your funds and going to lend them out or kind of investing in other things um, because they are fundamentally, you know, the clients deposit as funds. And through a series of kind of different actions and also through a series of very poorly kind of managed systems plus what it appears to be a fraudulent kind of backdoor accounting system that was in place to hide some of these transfers, client funds were essentially used to invest in a whole bunch of different things, to pay out to different employees and founders for a whole bunch of different transactions that people are still trying to figure out what they were for, with the end result that essentially you know, $8 billion of client funds have been lost, including you know, a significant number of funds from retail depositors, which is obviously the most serious, to institutional fund managers, to projects working in crypto. And it's essentially hit basically almost every single person with a lot of cascading effects as these losses are starting to be borne by institutions and, and other actors in the space. So misuse, fraud, and of course, I think a collapse of some of the intrinsic value 
as defined by whatever they were trying to do here. So a huge mess here. So there have been people who said, Jeremy, this is an unfortunately a hostile action saying Bankman Fried, misunderstood, young person flew too close to the sun, but screwed by crypto, macro, headwinds, and obviously hostile action by other crypto players like Binance and CZ, etc. What's your response to that? Is that any grounds to that? How do you think about it? You know, this whole thing was precipitated by the fact that Coindesk released the you know reports about the balance sheet being insolvent, and then that was closely followed by kind of no no one's really can say of course for sure exactly why CZ did what he did, but I think what is facts is CZ then went to say that he wanted to liquidate the FTT holdings and to sell that in the open market which caused part of the crisis of confidence in the books for Alameda. You know, some people say that there was part of the war that they were having. Some people said that, hey, you know, he was just responding to Coindesk insolvency report. Those are the facts of what has happened. I think regardless of kind of the sell pressure that was had on FTT, you know, fundamentally, if an exchange, as per their own terms and conditions, were not touching clients' funds, essentially, you know, they would not be insolvent, right? Because the client's funds will always be there. They essentially be acting as custodian and they are not kind of, you know, trading on the basis of that. So I think it's very clear, you know, despite everything that fundamentally there was a, a breach of the terms and conditions. There was a breach of what people who were depositing money signed up for, how those funds were to be used. I mean, they were misused. And I think that's fundamentally at the heart of uh, the current crisis. That's, you know, lines up with what I think. And, you know, I always share that, you know, like Bernie Mandoff, obviously he was running a Ponzi scheme. He was misusing client funds and so, so forth. But obviously he only came to light when there was macro headwinds, right? You know, when the water was rising, you know, nobody tried to cash out and, and everything was fine. So you can't really say the economic crisis caused Bernie Madoff's collapse, right? It was more like the fundamental cancer, right? That was just really there eating away at the fundamental dynamics of it. So I think what we're going to turn to, obviously, is that I think there's a lot of people who are interested about trying to understand, you know, Southeast Asia's role, right? Because the news has primarily been from an American perspective and to some extent, maybe a global perspective and aggregate. But, you know, what is Southeast Asia's exposure from your perspective at a high level to obviously not just to FTX, but also perhaps other the other similar crisis moments? I think we mentioned earlier, like 3AC and obviously Terra Luna, but what are the links, I guess, between Southeast Asia on the first order basis? It's really fascinating. I think Southeast Asia holds a place like no other because you have the interplay of, call it three different things. Firstly, I'm not trying to draw any conclusions from this, but we've had three $10 billion blowups in crypto and all three of them were linked to Southeast Asia. So, you know, Luna is based in Singapore, 3AC was based in Singapore, and FTX was born out of Hong Kong, right? And so we somehow have this linked to you know the biggest crises and disasters that happen in crypto. So that's one thing to bear in mind. And second thing to bear in mind is that I think the approach that we've taken, and I'm not going to make comments on whether or not it's good or bad, but I do think there's some soundness to it where you know we focus on institutional adoption in Singapore and we try to attract crypto companies to, to build, right? And I think that fundamentally is a good approach. I think you know we should be encouraging companies who are interested in building new things in crypto to continue innovating in the space. But unfortunately, I think part of that has also meant that some of these companies that were licensed or were supported also had ties to Singapore, Southeast Asia, etc. With, with FTX, I think, being one of the latest examples. Um, and so that's that second kind of institutional focus angle to think about. And the third thing is, 
also something that I'm also pretty bullish on now is that Southeast Asia has been one of the regions with the most amount of consumer adoption for crypto. I mean, we look at Philippines, Vietnam, and some of the examples of consumer adoption of crypto. And that's happening in the backdrop of what's going on on the institutional side. You know, as the days go by, I'm more and more bullish on consumer adoption of crypto because the whole point of consumer adoption is to really abstract away the blockchain, to abstract away crypto to the point that the people interacting with them don't know that it's fundamentally crypto. So I think why I'm bullish about consumers, the industry right now is dealing with the fallout of what's happening. And yet, you know, consumer crypto is going to keep advancing. It's going to keep building products for consumers from abstracting that blockchain away. And so, you know, almost in a way, kind of move away from the stigma from people kind of consciously using crypto, consciously interacting with things that they may not fully understand the way that we see in DeFi and finance and on the institutional side of things. And so I think Southeast Asia is, is always in this really interesting place because it has this interplay that I think no other region has. So it'd be really interesting to kind of see how that all pans out moving forward. I mean, let's double click on what would you say are the links you know, between Southeast Asia and all three of those things we mentioned, right? So I'll start first. Uh, I think Tomasic has had to share that he had to write down a $275 million investment in FTX that they invested between late 2021 and early 2022. So I think that's one direct exposure. Obviously, there were a lot of Singapore retail investors that had invested in the FTX International Exchange. I think Singaporeans formed one of the largest uh, groups by nationality that were affected, I think, in a recent uh, audit. But unfortunately, another way of saying it is that you know Singapore is a much smaller population compared to many of the other countries, right? So I haven't done the analysis to understand how many number of Singaporeans had exposure, but definitely I've met in-person folks who have had Bitcoin or other assets you know, still frozen on the FTX platform, including just last night, right? So what else is the other links that we have, unfortunately, to I think this year's uh, train wreck that has been happening in slow motion? You know, kind of retail trading exposure is certainly very high. I think Singapore and many other Asian countries uh, are at the forefront of crypto adoption. I think as a result, when you have an incident that affects crypto in a negative light, chances are you're going to have kind of outsized impact on, on kind of users who are more adapt to this, right? You know, and now I'm going to sugarcoat that there's a lot of very experienced people who, who did get hit in this kind of FTX incident. I think a lot of this was, was frankly very difficult to have caught. We've seen in the press how there were backdoor algos and, and mechanisms designed specifically to obfuscate kind of detection. And so I think a lot of this from the investor side is, is very unfortunate. Of course, you know, Pantera, we never invested directly into FTX, but I think that that's something that's just really unfortunate for a lot of investors involved. You know, I think you asked about other exposures. I think the good thing is that we have a lot of people who spent a lot of time in crypto and Southeast Asia and who are also exposed to different parts of it, right? I think there are many kind of interesting consumer use cases that are, that are being explored and that have adoption and we'll continue to see that for sure. And so a lot of those projects, customer discovery processes are really fundamentally not very affected by what's directly happened by FTX. And so we'll continue to see progress on that side. Um, we'll continue to see progress on the infrastructure built out. But yeah, I think fundamentally, we had a lot of institutional funds who are in Singapore, who are based in Singapore. A lot of them have been affected. And so that's something that we'll continue to see unravel uh, and gain more clarity as the kind of damage reports continue to flow in. 
Yeah, and I think we saw that, you know, we had, you know, Do Kwon was in Singapore after kind of like the Terra Luna crash. Obviously, Three Arrows Capital was based in Singapore as well. So I think there's just, like you said, there's that, you know, unfortunate, like, you know, capital and people links, right, with all of these. And I think also, I, I think I look at more broadly as well. I, I look at Southeast Asia as a whole. I think there's also a lot of crypto exchanges. I think that really borrowed a lot of inspiration, I would say in terms of their business model, hopefully not from the uh, financial fraud and internal controls. Uh, I think from the US principle, so they were like kind of like saying like, you know, our job is to clone and localize for our, that approach for our, our different sub-markets. Uh, so that's been one approach. I think we also had Hold or Not, actually now that I mentioned it, there's also another Singaporean company that imploded, unfortunately, after I think being kind of like the entry ramp, right, for retail consumers to unknowingly from their perspective, actually be entering the Terra Luna ecosystem. And I think we see that more broadly in Thailand, we see in Indonesia, I think we see this broader ripple, like you said earlier, of retail investors who unfortunately have lost capital, right? And I think from my perspective is I think it's because of two big reasons, right? Or even three, right? I say, I think the first is that I think local ability to invest on stocks and all these public, you know, markets and so forth, unfortunately is hard, right? In many of these markets, I think not everybody is like the US where you have Robin Hood equivalent. And so I think there's been a big push or desire by retail investors who are reading the news to join, you know, all of that. The second, of course, is I think obviously Southeast Asia, unfortunately, is still obviously has a lower GDP per capita or is a lower income, right, than the US. And so they're not accredited investors, right? So they're also not allowed to trade many of the sophisticated financial instruments, even if they could get access somehow to a US bank account or instruments and so, so forth. So I think they are, to some extent, you know, find that crypto is the only place that it can easily get in with a smaller ticket, right? And I think the third, of course, is how we talked about is that the population across Southeast Asia is young, you know, millennial, Gen Z. So they're obviously reading news. They are very much plugged in from my perspective and also aspirational, right? They would like to build out their life savings to be able to raise their families and so, so forth. And so they find that they're in crypto, right? And I think that's a story actually I hear quite a bit in Malaysia, in the Philippines. Like there's just like, a, you know, in other words, I can't qualify for a trading account. And if I could qualify a trading account, I wouldn't be able to do the stuff I want to do anyway. And this is the only hope I have for a better life, right? It's such a shame, I think, that that hope is like totally divergent from the actual financial returns, at least over the past one year, right? Or even over a broader period of time. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, do you feel like that's going to change? Do you think that more mainstream people, middle class folks who continue on RAM. Do you feel like regulators will feel like they have a responsibility to regulate or protect? How do you see that playing out? I think maybe three reactions, right? So I think the first thing which is important to note is, frankly, why I joined the crypto space in the first place, which is I fully believe that being able to access global permissionless economic layer is something that is fundamentally useful for people. Right? I think that the financial value chain has a ton of different obstacles that are unnecessary that restrict people from accessing the kind of margins that we see middle men in financial value chains accessing and profiting very handsomely. I'm deeply passionate about the ability to get there. That being said, I think it's definitely irresponsible to not see that crypto at the moment has a lot of pieces of it that is being misused. Right. And that sometimes with you know what we see with centralized exchanges, centralized entities within crypto, you kind of have the worst of both worlds 
where there's no recourse, but there's also no regulation, and so there's no transparency uh, behind the whole thing. And that's you know exactly describing FTX, and that's exactly describing what has happened here. There are, I think, two ways to take this. One of the ways that you know I spend a lot of time is also looking at, at DeFi, right? Like DeFi is by definition permissionless; it's transparent. You can understand what's going on. I'll also point out, you know, a lot of the DeFi protocols that were up and running barely even made a sound, right? Like Aave, Compound, Uniswap, SushiSwap, all of these were running well, fundamentally because they didn't have whole custody of your funds, the contracts were battle tested. And so the fact I like to use is last week during the entire crisis, you know, Aave and Compound didn't even tweet. And I was on Twitter <laughs> a lot during that week, just trying to catch up on news. And so DeFi and parts of crypto do hold this promise for people where you know you're relying on self-custody, you're relying on trusted, cryptographically protected tools to help you further financial independence, right? And so that's good parts of crypto that I want to focus on. I want to focus on growing. I want to focus on making sure that more and more people have access to that and that's safe, there to help, right? Without forgetting the fact that yes, we, there, there are some really bad things in crypto that have happened, and we can't forget that, and it should be a valuable lesson for anyone building that this is terrible, and we, you know, we should avoid that, right? And and call that out when necessary. You know, I think there's also, and I've, I've made this post publicly. I think there's a lot of investors and founders, also, you know, throughout tech, non-tech, whatever, but also in crypto, where you know you can't criticize, and when you find out you can't criticize, it, it turns out that this whole thing is something that was about to explode. Right. And so accountability, responsibility, focusing on the good things, transparency, those are the things I want to focus on. Now, on your point of regulators, I think that's the other route I see kind of crypto going, which is that, yes, you know, we're going to have DeFi. It's going to get safer. It's going to be better. But regulators also need to act because they will feel compelled to. And I think, unfortunately, yes, we're going to see, you know, a clamp down on a lot of, of crypto. I think there will a lot of opportunities for new ones maybe lost because of what has happened here. And it kind of does behoove people in the industry in crypto to try to talk through some of these points, right? Make sure the nuance doesn't get lost and that, you know, sometimes some of these, you know, centralized entities are terrible, right? And terrible for crypto, they're terrible for, for retail investors, they're terrible for regulators, they're terrible for everyone. And so I think we need to kind of not lose sight of what's potentially good of course, of the fact that you know many people are just not going to want to take the energy to understand the nuance, and and I think that's very fair because you know all they see is all these negative headlines of people losing money, this and that, and I think that's a very normal reaction. One of the jobs I like to do is is, is try to say, hey, look, no, there are good things about crypto. They are working. We've seen them work. They're working right now. We can use them, right? Um, and here's how to think about those. Awkward reality is that. I think we use a lot of, you know, buzzwords, right? You know, DeFi and all these other things. But at the end of the day, when you boil down to it, these are like US and Singapore domicile companies doing plain old fraud, conflict of interest, you know, regulatory, internal regulatory and oversight and risk management drops, right? And the awkward reality is just like, so who's incentivizing that, right? You know, obviously, I think there's a big push and I think there's a lot of internal industrial championing of self-regulation, right? Unfortunately, I think Sang Bangman Fried was also like the, one of the biggest champions, right, of self-regulation, but also to some extent actually advocating for some regulatory action as well, right? And so I think that hypocrisy at that level has really kind of like really uh, stunk up the whole place and cause a lot of confusion because in some weird way he was the most supposedly pro-regulator a pro-us regulator 
maybe perhaps in lobbying, but also in terms of engagement, speeches, dynamics, even representation across the table, right? And so I think there's a lot of confusion about what the right approach is. I think my personal point of view is that at the end of the day, I think the same fundamental fiduciary standards apply to everybody at the end of the day. You know, I think that a company... You know, Alameda Research lent a billion dollars, right, <laughs> you know, to the CEO and half a billion dollars, right, to his head of engineering, right, Nishat Singh. So I can't think of many companies in the world, if any, I think they ever lend that much money to their own executives, right, if that makes sense. Uh, and I think that should have raised flags, I think, to everybody, right? I, I don't think it's regulated level, but at least from uh, risk management and even internal board perspective, right, uh, and definitely from a shareholder perspective. So I think for me, it's just really about making sure that the same standards are there. You know, we talk about audit standards as well, right? You know, it was interesting to read that FTX did not have any of the big four doing their audit. Maybe the big four was smart enough to also not do the, the, the accounting audit. Maybe they kind of walked away. It was just interesting that I was like, yeah, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we just would like people to hold them to the same standard, right? You know, and I think it's a shame that it's only starting to happen. I mean, I think today's news as well was that Elizabeth Holmes got 11 over years, right, for her fraud for Terranos. And I think one thing I think about is like, I think that's pretty fair, right? I think it's a good chunk of time. And she unfortunately put patients' lives at stake, right, who are trusting on the results of her fraudulent blood testing approach. And she was also misrepresenting the company's advancements and technology and progress to the board and the shareholders. That being said, and you know, uh, John Wu, you know, my HBS classmate actually raised some good points on Twitter. He said, from a shareholder perspective, Taranos, the only people who were exposed to it from a shareholder perspective were accredited investors. You know, there was a board of directors and Elizabeth Holmes did not steal, get a billion dollar loan, let alone transfer money to themselves, nor mint additional tokens. She didn't build a backdoor, right, in terms of the financial uh, systems accounting to bypass audit and compliance. So in some ways, I think FTX does seem, I think some people have claimed that it's victimless because all financial, nobody like had fake blood results. I think in terms of the magnitude of the financial crimes, you know, I think there's a lot more um, or similar dynamics well, I think eventually play out, I think, to obviously not just civil action, but criminal charges, right? I hope that's enough, actually. I hope if that slow-moving legal process can stiffen the spines, I think, of executives who want to cut corners slash wander into committing fraud slash explicitly decide to commit fraud or something like that to stop it. But I think one thing I was really disappointed about, I think, about FTX was just like the lack of internal executives who said no or was willing to whistleblow, right? I do think there is a whistleblower FTX. I think somebody gave that Alameda balance sheet to CoinDesk. So there is one whistleblower. I don't know who that is, but I respect. I think people are forgetting that story, part of the story, that somebody who had access to that, I don't think it's a hacker. I think it says somebody who had access, somehow made the right call. Maybe it was a financial incentive as well to short sell the stock, who knows? Uh, but someone made the right call to do it. But I just feel like it's disappointing that the whole... Uh, executive team of FTX and Alameda, unfortunately, nobody kind of like stepped in and said like, I said, there's something wrong, right? Uh, I think there's uh, Constance Wang, right? She's uh, someone who studied at National University of Singapore, the COO of FTX, formerly from Credit Suisse. And she had studied risk management there. So she had gone through the basic training, I would say, at the, at the bank about some of this stuff. And she was living on premise with many of the key actors. You know, I feel like there's a huge story where there's a lot of people who basically saw everything happening 
but didn't step in, right? I don't know. I think this is me ranting, I guess, you know, but I think that's my disappointment, I would say, you know, what are your thoughts, Cha? Yeah, I mean, maybe one quick qualification, like SBF is definitely not the face of self-regulation. And I think he was definitely very hairy-handed and there was a lot of backlash to him in the weeks before because of the bill that he was trying to push through Congress that would essentially kind of heavily regulate DeFi. He was also kind of very aggressively trying to build systems to accumulate more assets. And so I think one train of thought is that SBF was really trying to ensure that more and more assets were under his control, both from DeFi and both from other exchanges, essentially to continue growing, you know, what he'd been growing, right? And to, you know, get more assets to potentially cover the hole that, that he knew existed. And so that's that's one I think very important clarification that, you know, a lot of people in the crypto community were very opposed to what he was trying to do before this whole FTX uh, thing happened. So I think that's point one. I think point two, yeah, you're absolutely right, right? And I think one thing that shouldn't go unnoticed is the fact that this is a broader generalized problem about governance and kind of oversight and accountability fundamentally in, in all companies, right? We saw similar things with WeWork, you know, which was audited by EY. You know, we saw similar things with, with other companies. Terranos is another great example. And there is very little difference fundamentally. Of course, consequences are, are very different, but there was very little difference fundamentally about the way that they were approaching building, which is, you know, reckless abandon to the consequences and to accountability. You know, arguably when you when you see a setup, and I'm going to quote the current CEO who's taken over, what you essentially have here is a bunch of very inexperienced people, potentially, you know, deliberately chosen because of that, who essentially kind of allowed the exact team to do whatever they want, right? And they were also, to be clear, like very handsomely rewarded for doing that. And so I think that that's something that is part of, I think, the bull run that we've seen in the past 10 years, inevitable consequence of what happens when it's easy to throw money around and not give oversight. When the market turns against you, you start to realize that, okay, like some of these things actually don't make sense, right? That's an important thing to bear in mind. Like this is a generalized problem. It happens in any market that's moving too fast. It's growing too fast. It's making a bunch of people a lot of money. It happens in traditional finance. It's happening here in crypto. And these are not good things, right? And so I think the next few years is a great time, as you mentioned, to kind of reflect on how everyone should be building, investing, and kind of supporting kind of key industry players as the market is you know, slower to recover from all of this. And maybe one last clarification is uh, I think there are very heavy rumors of, of who is likely to have leaked that to Coindesk. I think the most plausible rumor, which I won't say here, is that it's probably from an external party rather than an internal party. Yeah, maybe that's the case. I think there is a strong financial incentive for somebody to do it because you could have easily done shorts on the whole position and probably someone could have had, you know, this is like the defense of all short sellers, you know, and why short sellers should be allowed and all this investigative journalism needs to be allowed, right? Because the market can't work without information, right? You know, for me, I just feel like if there's one key takeaway, I mean, like you said, the industry is moving, it's like, Industry is moving quickly, but humans are the same, right? <laughs> you know, financial fraud has happened or fraud has happened for like hundreds, if not thousands of years, right? And obviously, you know, for you and I, I think we learned, you know, at business school, which was like, you know, the fraud triangle, right? You know, it's like, hey, you know, like at the end of the day, it's like the three things that, you know, causes people to go bad, right? It's like opportunity, motive and rationalization, right? You know, motive, you know, you are going to make money. You, you have no, you know, there's a lot of pressure. Somebody's telling you to do it. 
this opportunity because no one's watching. There's no controls internally. No, the management is not really cat checking. The ball is not really there. And then rationalization, right? Which is like, not saying like, oh, I want to fraud, fraud. But, you know, it's like, I'm just going to make up for the loss, right? I lost something. I'm going to make it up again. Let me double or nothing, double or nothing. And then, you know, there's, oh, it's only a loan. I'll pay back eventually. These are all like ways that just very normal human beings who you would trust to, I don't know, not rob you while buying a can of Coke, you know, or, you know, just hang out with you at a dinner party without committing murder, just ends up doing this, right? I mean, you know, it reminded me when you were talking about it, you know, the collapse of Barings Bank, right? The, the oldest merchant bank in Britain, which was founded in, I mean, I have these notes on the side, founded in 1762 and collapsed in 1995, 233-year-old bank destroyed by Nicholas William Leeson, a trader in the Singapore office. So <laughs> Singapore is a I don't know what's going on here. But yeah, you know, I think he was a futures trader that just kept doubling down on it. And he basically created like a $2.2 billion debt hole, right? You know, which is utterly insane, obviously, if you think about it from one individual doing it, but also like how he wasn't caught earlier, right? So it's just a really crazy, uh, I don't know, what's the word? Like, it's just like we keep rediscovering that humans, I don't know, it's like, I don't know, humans are like version 0.1, right? That's what I tell people all the time, right? It's like crypto, we're like, we're like monkey brains, you know, in, uh, you know, strapped to what our dinosaur bones, you know, fueling electricity with algorithms. I don't know. It's just like, I don't know, screaming through the jungle, right? On a, on a rocket ship. I don't know. I think you're right, right? Like, I think there's a bunch of takeaways I think are relevant here. Like, number one, just like your example, that trader who blew up the bank and who was in Singapore, Singapore's trying to be a financial hub, right? And you can't be a financial hub without realizing that being a financial hub means a lot more financial activity, some of which are going to be fraudulent, right? And it's going to look bad. So you kind of have to take the view, like, do you want Singapore, do you want Southeast Asia to be in the center of this or not? Being in the center of, there's less financial crimes in, I don't know, Utah. Like, that doesn't make Utah, like, a great financial district, right? Sorry for anyone from Utah. And so I think that's kind of fundamentally like the first thing to realize, right? Like if you want to be the forefront of things, and frankly, I think Singapore has, right? Singapore was on the forefront of this in a move that I think is generally surprising to Singaporeans. And there was backlash, right? Do you believe that this is going to be part of the next kind of iteration of financial technology? Uh, quite a lot of us do believe that. And so there are certain things that, that are in place. And certainly, you know, we can improve the way that we do things as a whole, right? investors, founders, regulators, etc. There's always room for improvement. And I think we will get there, right? I think that's the first thing to bear in mind. And I think it's very good to treat new situations with a lot more humbleness, a lot more kind of introspection about kind of how we're doing things, right? So that's the first thing to, to know. The second thing to note is that we are not, you know, at least in the crypto industry, like we are not just, here's an exchange to buy monkey tokens, right? Like we are here to do a lot more things and there's a lot of consumer applications that are going on there's a lot of very interesting things that are happening and this will happen despite the collapse of certain exchanges and things like that and so all of these innovations are just continue to grow and we're going to keep seeing that grow right and so like an exchange is not the industry i think that's the second thing i just want to be able to communicate and then the last thing i just want to be able to communicate is as a country we're like surprisingly indexed to crypto for whatever reason. I have my own suspicions on psychology, but like I like to make the joke that a Singaporean actually in almost every single major crypto fund. Why is a is a very, very interesting longer conversation. We are very, very indexed to this because I think there's a lot about it that's exciting. There's a lot that we can bring our skills to like 
global audience for the first time, you know, in the industry, you can say, hey, like the top leaders of this industry are based in Singapore, right? We don't say that really for, you know, B2B SaaS, for example, right? We don't say that for a lot of industries. And we can say that because the government has taken some proactive measures here. They were one of the fastest movers here, right? The Singapore government was very close to Vitalik as Vitalik was trying to build up Ethereum, which I think was a really good way of understanding the power of what blockchain has to do, again, on the good side of things for institutions, etc. And, you know, I think that's a good thing, right? Like we're able to say, hey, like we are going to take ownership and leadership in certain things because we think that that's the future, right? And sometimes like there will be downsides as mentioned before, but there's also a bunch of like really strong advantages for that. Right. And I think that's kind of important to bear in mind. Some of the benefits from a social and kind of nation building and industry competitiveness perspective, right? When we do this, right? And again, like full acknowledgement that I think, frankly, as an industry, like a lot of people would feel very, very disappointed about what has happened. And I think that a lot of that is fair. That's uh, actually a beautiful, uh, I don't know, hope signal, I guess, which is. Slash remembery, right? Which is, yeah, I think you're right. I think Singapore is a financial hub for the world and also an innovation leader, I think, for the region as well. And so I think the truth is there are consequences. And I think it goes back to, you know, like you said about the bearings back, right? Which is after that happened, it did happen. It was individual, but then Singapore then changed the law, right? To improve, you know, governance and oversight, right? And even licensing of the industry. Yeah, it collapsed in 1995, but, you know, in 2022 and 2023, I think Singapore is even a stronger financial hub, right? Today versus back then. Like you said, I think one meltdown and disaster doesn't tire the whole thing. And again, also, you know, FTX, for example, was a Bahamas and US entity, right? So I don't think it has the same flavor. I think we're just talking about retail exposure and perhaps obviously, you know, investor exposure, right, to it. But that's very different. I don't think it happened on the MAS watch, right, in that sense. And I think, like you said, I think also I think the Monetary Authority of Singapore has been proactive. I think it did see this coming and has already begun taking, I think, the I think tonality, I think, shift, but also I think looking into this more deeply as well, much earlier in the year, right? I think what you reminded me of is like, you know, when every time, every time you try and build something new, like the awkward reality is like you have all these like good faith actors playing the long game, right? And the truth is like, in a short term, just all the people who are like bad faith playing in the short term, it just swamps the system, right? It's just totally like, I don't know, just kills the system over and over again. But, you know, I think it's a shout out to all the people who are good faith, building the long term, actually doing the work. Like you said, like, you know, got to keep building, got to keep your head down. I think got to get a lot of hate, actually, you know, and skepticism, right? And uh, I don't know what you call it now, crypto winter, crypto nuclear winter fallout, you know, style. What do you, what do you call it now, I guess? Bear market. <laughs> bear market. That's like saying it mildly, right? A bear market was, anyway. I don't know. What advice do you have for builders, right? Builders of crypto, people who are crypto interested. What advice do you have for them? Like, you know. Yeah, I can give you know, two things, which is, you know, I think the good thing about bear market is a lot of the hype goes away. You're talking to people who are all serious, right? That's all who's left who are really serious. And I think, you know, the other piece is like looking for product market fit. Right, like a lot more conversations, very much focused on product market fit as opposed to you know the next hype thing, which again we see in traditional tech all the time. And so I think laser sharp focus on again on what people want can serve and solve problems for people. I think that's good. And then the second thing is yeah, like you know, DeFi exists. Use DeFi. You know, 
that's something, you know, self-custody, decentralized protocols. There's a lot of things that are tried and tested that continues to iterate on the best practices and they're completely transparent. And these are the things that we should be using a lot more. We could go on for another hour, I think. But I think I want to wrap things up here. For me, I think the three big things I took away for this, obviously, was I think, first of all, I think it was a great, obviously, recap of the FTX situation, but also I think the Southeast Asia first order consequences, I think, in terms of retail investors, institutional investors, regulators, and even, you know, geographic location, right, as a source of talent, like you mentioned, but also as a place for crypto talent slash you know, executives together as well, right? And so I think we've definitely seen a lot of Southeast Asia exposure to, I think, all of the crypto bear market trigger slash inflection points, right? I think the second thing I, I really appreciate us talking about was, I think going back to basics a little bit about what went wrong. I think we talked about, obviously, fraud. We talked about oversight. We talked about regulatory action. We talked about the fraud triangle. We did a history lesson about how it's happened multiple times over history, financial fraud. And I think we just keep rediscovering that humans can go bad. And I think it was just a, an interesting dynamic for us to, I think, be reflective on and I think be thoughtful about. I think the third thing is, I think I like the call to action, which is about saying, hey, at the end of the day, if you are a crypto builder and you are a good faith, long-term player, like you said, now's a good time to be heads down, keep building, the hype is washed out and just slowly do what needs to be done despite the media, despite you know, friends and family and just uh, keep building slowly. I also like, obviously, a push towards decentralized finance, which is, I think, a pretty nuanced view. I think I, don't, I think most people can't really tell the difference between decentralized finance and, you know, centralized finance and obviously what happened to FTX. So I think that's worth, I think, for people who are unclear or curious to kind of like Google and just kind of like go down that path to at least understand how it could have mitigated some of these consequences. One thing I'll add, I think what you inspired me to say for this call to action, I think it's also a call to action to venture capitalists, executives, institutional investors, regulators to really step up our game. You said earlier, it's like, you know, there's, I think there's a pressure to not call out folks, right? You know, to not say stuff, right? And I think the unfortunate piece is that silence is, you know, complicity at some level, right? For when bad things happen. And, you know, actually it goes all the way up to, <laughs> in legal terms, negligence or even gross negligence, right? If you have a fiduciary duty, right? As an executive. And, you know, I think it's a good reminder that you know, everybody needs to do their due diligence. If you're an investor in crypto, you have to do the work. There's no such thing, like you said earlier, as a free lunch in a bull market, everything go up. <laughs> you know, means I go up. I mean, it's not true. And I thought that was actually a good, I don't know, reminder that we just need to have more honest, no BS, I don't know, direct conversations about what's going on, right? Otherwise, you know, I mean, like you said, you know, if the external party didn't drop the Alameda balance sheet, even though it's external party, and even though there's a financial gain, can you imagine if this fraud snowballed for another, like, I don't know, two years and you know, the US bill got passed? I don't know. It would be like, I don't know, even more cataclysmic, honestly, right? Yeah. I mean, SBF at, at one point was trying to set up a commodities exchange, right? And, and make it one of the largest kind of traditional commodities exchange. Who knows what might have happened then? Yeah. At least the meltdown happened now, right? <laughs> Rather than later, right? I guess that's one way to think about it, even though that's a really weird way to say it. I think we all wish that this was popped, I don't know, a year ago, right? Maybe it wouldn't even be front page news. It wouldn't be an economist. It wouldn't be affecting, I think, a lot of the honest folks who are really building crypto in the right way, right? So thanks, Chao, for jumping on the call and discussing this, frankly. So it was fun. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, John. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode 
with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. <laughs>